Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this day that we have to cease from our work, to gather together as your people, to receive from your word what you would have for us, and to come to the Lord's table recognizing that there's nothing in us that's worth receiving your mercy and grace, but yet you offer it to us because of your great love. I ask now, Heavenly Father, that you would come to us now in the power of the Holy Spirit. You would take our minds and think through them. Take my lips now and speak through them. That you would take our delights and mold them to what delights you. And your duty would be our delight. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, we're in this series in Romans 5 and 6 during the Epiphany Tide that we find ourselves in. So this week we're in Romans chapter 5. Next week is World Mission Sunday. So two weeks from now we'll wrap up Romans 6 together. And we've entitled this, this passage, uh, this whole series, A Peaceful People. What does it mean to be at peace with God and be at peace with another as we go out ministering in our culture together? And we do this as a reminder every year in Romans because it's in Romans you have the most thorough and explanation of the gospel and the implication of the gospel in our everyday lives. And what we discovered is Zach a couple weeks ago wrapped up chapter 5. For five chapters Paul has been explaining to the church in Rome and therefore us what it is to be a Christian. And we learned that salvation is not achieved, but rather it's received. You know, and there, in other words, how and why we should believe in Jesus Christ to be who he claims to be. That's chapters 1 through 5. And so chapters 6, and we'll see next year also in 7 and 8, Paul starts to explain how if you believe in Jesus Christ... How that faith actually changes you. How, how is it that it's actually real and makes a difference in each and every one of our lives? What's the process of that change? How does that really happen in the believer's life? So this is for every single one of us, no matter where you are in your journey this morning, ladies and gentlemen. If you feel like in one aspect or another that your life needs to change, how does that flow from my belief in Jesus Christ? And so therefore, Paul, after five chapters, anticipates the question that we've all asked of God at one time in our lives. You know, God loves to forgive. I love to sin. Great deal. Do what I want. You've thought that. I know, if you're honest. If you've actually read the text, you've thought that. What's going on in Rome is there are those who are saying, you know, I like to sin, God likes to forgive. Therefore, the more I sin, the more grace I get. (laughs) Paul's not laughing. (laughs) Because, well, it is. It is funny, but you think about it. We've applied it in different ways in our American context. We say things like, baby, we're in love. Let's do it. God knows we love one another. 
ah, you know, I can worship God anywhere. I don't need to be with God's people on the Lord's day. Or, you know what, this Christian thing just, it, it doesn't, just doesn't work the way I want it to. It, yeah, I'll, I'll make it work my way. You know, Paul understands this. And it's a natural understanding. I believe it, but I'll do it my way. He gets that. And he wants to head it off for the Roman and for us. So let's turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. If you're a guest this morning, it'll be in back of the bulletin for you. You can see. And what we learn is Paul gives a pretty direct answer, doesn't he? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2. By no means. All right? In coach speak, you got to be kidding me, son. No. If it's, the, if it's the, the message, Eugene Peters' message says, should I keep sinning that grace may abound? I should hope not. And I love J.B. Phillips' version, translation. It's very British. Should I keep sinning that grace may abound? What a ghastly idea. Isn't that great? I love the Brits, Lucy. They're great. What a ghastly idea. Do you, do you understand? All right? It's not our lives. It's Jesus' life in us. And so Paul starts to complain, not to complain, to explain how we can live in this transforming grace that he gives us. Verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When you truly trust in Jesus Christ, my friends, it's described as having a new life. The old is gone, the new has come. That's what Paul is saying to us. What is he talking about here? He's talking about baptism the reality of our baptism and baptism is sort of like a wedding ring it's one thing to fall in love with somebody it's another thing to give your life to that other person it's one thing to be in love it's another thing to commit yourself to that person till you draw your dying breath that's what the wedding ring signifies and that's what baptism signifies for the believer when we're baptized and when we're confirmed in our tradition, it's serious. It's a commitment. So when he's talking about baptism, he's not talking about some kind of super Christian. He's talking about anybody who's really given their life to Jesus Christ. And he describes it as a new life. And so Paul describes in verses 5 down to 14 what's true of those people. And how they live this life unto the Lord with this transforming grace that he's been talking about. And what they do are three things. They know, they consider, and they present. Know, consider, present. We know the breadth of our union in Christ. We consider that union all the time. And we present our lives unto Christ as we live day by day. All right? So let's look at these, shall we? First, know the breadth of your union with Christ. Verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. All describing united with Christ. That word united is a strange word. Actually, it's a horticultural word, meaning grafted in the vine at the root level, not above the surface level. It's not engrafted up here. It's a metaphor that you were engrafted in Christ at the source of the root. It's a metaphor trying to say that we've been inserted in the very roots of the life of Jesus Christ together. We've been united to the past, present, and the future of Jesus Christ. So verse 5 says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his... We've died in Christ. That our past is his past. Paul says this in Colossians 3, where Christ is, you know, you've been raised with Christ, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the God, set your minds on things above. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You've died in him. You'll be raised in him. You're seated at the right hand of God in him. So imagine a person finds themselves suddenly rich. How'd they get rich? Through their intelligence, through their uh, diligence of effort, their focus, and they strike it big. Then they get married. And they marry a person that's utterly impoverished. All of a sudden, that person that's utterly impoverished by virtue of their marriage finds himself utterly rich. Did they do anything to earn it? No, it's all by grace. It's by virtue of being married. It's a legal union. And Jesus Christ comes and gives us that honor. The Father looks at the Son seated at the right hand of the Father, as we say in the Nicene Creed that Paul spoke about in Colossians 3, where Christ is, seated at the right hand, he bursts with delight at what Jesus has done. He bursts with delight in seeing Jesus' finished work upon the cross for us. All his good works, everything he lived perfectly unto the Father. So what this text is saying is that everything Jesus Christ has done is now legally true of you. The determining factor in your relationship with God is no longer your past, but Christ's past. And the Father dotes on you and accepts you and delights in you as having all the beauty and greatness and glory of his Son. If you're not thinking that, you're not listening. Okay? His past is your past. He sees you free from condemnation and the guilt of your sins as if you died yourself and already paid the penalty for your sins. That's the first thing. And it says not only is Christ's past my past and your past, so's the future. 
It says, we will certainly be united in his resurrection. Did you catch the word certainly? He didn't say, now go clean up your act to be Mr. and Mrs. Bible champion. All right? He said, you certainly will be. Period. (laughs) That means there's an unbreakable connection to the moment you believe in the future of Jesus Christ. You're already connected to him. So what does this practically mean for us that we're united with Christ? There's a word that he uses here that's really fascinating. It's a philosophical term called palagenesia. You hear the word genesis in it, all right? It came from the Stoic philosophers who believed that the world is just all messed up and eventually will be purged and will be rebirthed. And therefore, there's a constant birthing and rebirthing and purging and rebirthing going on in Stoic philosophy. And here's what we heard Jesus say to the apostles after his time with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19.28. Jesus takes that word and deliberately uses it in an astonishing way. In verse 28 in chapter 19, Jesus says, At the renewal of all things, at the palagenesia, When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, everyone who has lost houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in eternal life. For many who will be first will be last and the last will be first. Because what Jesus is saying here is that there's a single point toward which all of history is flowing. Everything will be purged. Everything will become new. Everything will will dance. Everything will be whole. And what power is life transforming enough to perform this? The answer is when Jesus Christ puts forth his royal power and when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne in the future, the entire world is going to be purged. Everything will be reborn. Cosmic rebirth. Everything sad will become true. History will itself be changed. That's amazing. But here's what's more amazing. The word shows up one more time in the Bible. In Titus 3.5, Paul is talking about our personal salvation. And Paul says, Jesus saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but by the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The washing of the rebirth, the palagenesia, which talks about a cosmic birth, is now be applied to the individual believer. You see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying the minute you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, the power of the future, transcendent order, absolute ultimate life-giving power that's someday going to regenerate the entire cosmos, comes into your life and begins its work now. Therefore, if someone says, I like to sin, God loves to forgive, whoopee, you don't have a clue at what you're saying, says Paul. You haven't the slightest idea what's happened to you. You didn't just get an insurance policy to get out of hell. You didn't say, you didn't get just a get out of free 
card, jail-free card, you were united to everything in Christ's past and everything that's in his future. When we come to Christ, we usually come with incredibly small expectations. And C.S. Lewis gives a great illustration of this. He says, imagine yourself as a house and God comes to rebuild it. At first, you can understand what he's doing, getting the drains right, stopping the leaks on the roof, and so on. You know those jobs need doing, so you're not surprised. But suddenly, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it does not seem, you know, to make any sense at all. What in the world is God up to? He throws out a new wing here. Runs up a tower there, builds a courtyard. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it, in you. If we let him, he'll make the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such energy, joy, and wisdom, and love as we cannot now imagine a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. The process will be long and in parts painful, but that is what we're in for and nothing less. You gotta love old Clive. Therefore, if we say it's all of grace, why not live the life I want to? You haven't the slightest thing has happened to you. If becoming a Christian means union with Christ, it means two things at least. Number one, get rid of your low expectations of all that God's going to do in and through you. People often say, well, if I become a Christian, I have to stop doing this. I have to start doing that. Anticipate that you will not be able to anticipate the magnitude of changes that God wants to do in and through you. So my friends, know you're united in Christ. Know the breath of God's love. You are in Christ. His past and present is yours. He sees you for who you are, righteous in his sight. Secondly, we're to consider that unity constantly in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. That word consider, it's a verb, it's an accounting term. It's to reconcile the accounts. It's an evaluation term that we're to evaluate our lives and consider the fact that we're united with Christ. We're in Jesus Christ. His past is my past. I live in the present. He sees me as righteous right now. <laughs> Okay, and my future is amazing. And we're to do that day by day and realize that we have a human nature. We're able not to sin, but we do. And we go before him and ask his forgiveness, but the reality is we don't have to listen to the world. We don't have to listen to our own passions. We don't have to listen to our enemy because his past his perfect obedience is mine, and my future is glorious. 
think about that and reconcile that. Think of it this way. Let's imagine we're all in the USS Christchurch West Shore. We're out in the Atlantic Ocean and we're all serving on the deck and we have an absolutely awful captain. He's evil. He beats us. He makes us his slaves. We have to do anything and it's awful. His leadership is terrible. He's put us into bad situations constantly as a crew. To then we go to Jerry, our radio man, and say, call for help in Norfolk. Jerry hops on the radio and calls back to Norfolk. And the next day, over the horizon, we see a helicopter flying out. And out of that helicopter steps a new captain. And we're like, yay! He takes that evil captain and throws him in the jail on the ship. And he says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, back to work. And we all start to get back to work, and the ship's running smoothly. It's wonderful. And after a week, he says, all right, I'm going to let Captain Bufus out of the jail. Don't listen to a word he says. But after a while, we forget. We get, on, we get a break, and we're all standing around just enjoying the beautiful ocean. You know, it's a nice and calm day. And all of a sudden, the old captain comes out and starts barking orders at us. Swab the deck. Get to work. You better listen to me or you're going to get the cat of nine tails. And we start, we start obeying him again. We start doing what he does. He is the captain after all, right? The new captain comes along and says, stop, 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 stop. stop. I told you, you don't, don't listen to him. My friends, that's us in Jesus Christ. The world, the flesh, the devil has no power over us. Consider that. Christ passes ours. His perfection is upon us right now, and we got a glorious future. Reconcile that day by day by day. And then Paul doesn't leave us there. He even gives us a hand in knowing how to do that. And that's the third point. What do we do? We present ourselves to the Lord. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace." Considering is just simply taking all that we've learned for the past 11 chapters and every day presenting ourselves to the Lord as an instrument of righteousness. Yes, I'm a totally depraved sinner, but in Christ, I'm righteous. I'm his beloved child, and so are you. So therefore, here's the assignment. Think of it this way. You get up out of bed in the morning, it's early, you put your feet on the floor and flip it. Go, instead of no consider, present, consider what you know and then present like this. Lord, I consider that I am one with you, Lord Jesus Christ, that my past is perfect in you, that this day, as, as a sinner as I am, as rebellious as I am, I'm perfect in you because I place my trust in you. And I have a glorious future awaiting me in you. 
all of my life, and I can have purpose, freedom, and assurance this day because of your work for me, Lord Jesus Christ. Considering that what I know, I present myself to you this day, Lord, that my mind would think the thoughts that are formed through your word this day, that my heart would be softened to the reality of your grace for me and all those I love this day, that my eyes would go where you want them to go, that I would listen to your voice and the needs of others around me, that I would speak words of grace and truth to all those where I live, work, and play throughout this day, that I would, my feet would take me only where you lead me, Lord, and that my hands would be instruments of your blessing. And Lord, when I fail, help me to run to you. Get it? You see, it's not about doing, it's about being. All that we do in Christ just flows from who we are in Christ. It's the phrase that Paul uses more than any other thing, in Christ. So my friends, let's live in Christ, knowing that our past is his past. That in the present I am righteous in his sight and I have a glorious future. Consider that constantly. That you have a life like no one else. There's a purpose for you. Till the Lord takes you home. There's a freedom and a flourishing in this. There's an assurance that no matter my performance, I'm in his grip. And present ourselves daily to him for his glory and honor. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great truth which you've given us through the Apostle Paul that we can know how much we're loved in you. And because we're loved in you and we do trust in you and we have this new life of knowing and considering and presenting, I pray that we would do just that throughout this week. And as we do that, Lord, that you be glorified in and through us and we would Be people of that grace and truth, no matter where we are, beginning first in our homes and then in our workplaces and then wherever we're found so that you, O Lord, would be evident in each and every one of us. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.